This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 7, Episode 12. Asian American Violence and Hate. An interview with Civil Rights Commissioner Michael Yaki. Since the start of the COVID pandemic in 2020, Asian Americans have faced racist violence at a much higher rate than in previous years. San Francisco and Oakland's Chinatowns, for instance, have seen an increase in muggings and attacks on vulnerable seniors. To combat these attacks, and at the same time as the San Francisco Police Department's budget is being cut, Mayor London Breed announced a street violence intervention program, community youth center, and self-help for the elderly to patrol parts of the city in response to crimes against the Asian community. In New York, the New York Police Department has reported that hate crimes motivated by anti-Asian sentiment jumped 1,900% in New York City in 2020. Stop Asian Hate, a reporting database created at the beginning of the pandemic as a response to the increase in racial violence, received 2,808 reports of anti-Asian discrimination in the last nine months of 2020. The violence has continued into 2021, with President Biden signing an executive order denouncing anti-Asian discrimination as one of his first acts as president in January. And finally, the mass shootings at two Asian-owned spas in Atlanta, Georgia, last week, that left eight workers and patrons dead, has shown that anti-Asian American sentiment has taken a new and very deadly turn. Our history is marked by several examples of anti-Asian legislation that sought to curtail Asian immigration, and even civil rights. First, the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the late 1800s and other restriction immigration laws sought to limit the number of Chinese entering the United States. But in one of the darkest moments of Franklin Roosevelt's 12-year term as president, the internment of 120,000 Japanese-American citizens in camps scattered around the American West showed that the manipulation of perceived national security threats during the war with Japan could be used for a sinister end, denying American citizens their civil rights because of their ethnic heritage. Asian Americans make up 5.6% of the 330 million people in the United States, according to the 2020 census, consisting of Chinese Americans, 3.79 million, Filipino Americans, 3.4 million, Indian Americans, 3.18 million, Vietnamese Americans, 1.7 million, Korean Americans, 1.7 million, and Japanese Americans, 1.3 million. The rise in Asian American hate crimes and violence is an urgent threat that needs to be recognized and vigorously fought nationwide.
With us to discuss the security of Asian Americans today is Michael Yaki, the U.S. Civil Rights Commissioner. Michael is a graduate of UC Berkeley and Yale Law School. He was appointed by Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi to be her district director and senior advisor. Subsequently, he served on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for almost five years. And today, he runs his own consulting firm. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Um, it's been a long time. Great to be on your show. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, let me tell you a little bit what I've been doing since, uh, I think, probably when you and I last interacted. It was probably when I was on the Board of Supervisors. That's right. But uh, I've... Sorry? That's right. <clears throat> yeah. So, let's see. A few years, I started... I decided to remember the fact that, oh, yeah, I have a law degree, so maybe I should actually <laughs> use that. And... and uh, became a partner at a law firm, and then decided that uh, the economics of what I'd like to do, which is be a consultant, and the economics of a law firm, which is a billable hour thing, just didn't work out. So I started my own consulting firm, uh, Michael Yaki Consulting. And uh, one of the things I do is I do a lot of work in what's the clean energy finance industry. And uh, right now I work with a company called Petros Page Finance, which uh, finances Commercial property says clean energy financing, which is a assessment-based uh, form of financing that's uh, affordable and a lot of businesses use uh, across across the country. And my particular specialty, uh, and you probably could have guessed it, is, is legislative and regulatory uh, work uh, because it requires states to enact it. And I just I have three states I'm working on right now. I just got one passed earlier this week by. Uh, I like to call it a. It was in it's a in Tennessee. And I like to call it an SEC side score. If Tennessee were playing, you know, like um, uh, Bubba High School yes. uh, by a score of eighty-seven to zero in the House and thirty-three to nothing in the Senate, so oh, wow. pretty happy about that. I'm impressed. Yeah. I'm impressed. I guess. I, hey, you know, if, if you're gonna win, you got to win big, right? Absolutely. So. <laughs> and, and I guess once a legislator. Uh, of course, you served on the Board of Supervisors here in San Francisco for five years. Once a legislator, I guess, always a legislator, I guess you'd never get that bug, never get rid of that bug. No, and I mean, it's why I went into law school. I mean, when I, when I was in, in, this, in this kind of circle to what we're talking about today, when I was in high school, I was reading about uh, uh, Clarence Darrow and and and... I acted in inherited wing in high school and just thought, you know, being a lawyer is cool, but what I think is really interesting about being a lawyer is that you get to write the law and you get to affect it and understand it and, and, and see what it does to help people. And I had always put in my mind, uh, since I was a little kid, since I was 16, that I was going to go to Harvard or Yale and then I was going to go, uh, work for a committee in Congress or something and then run for office. And, in some way or fashion, I pretty much did all those things. So <laughs> you did, you did absolutely, and now you're, and now you're actually sitting in the catbird seat, writing the legislation and writing not only legislation for California but for multiple states around the country. Yeah, and most importantly, now um, I, I wouldn't call it my side gig. I always call everything else I do a side gig to what I really love, which is uh, when uh, then. Uh, 
leader Pelosi, now Speaker, um, appointed me as her appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, which is made up of eight, four appointed by the President, four appointed by the Congress, uh, two by each, each chamber, by the majority and minority leaders. And uh, I've been reappointed twice. I'm on my third term. Uh, and it's exciting and it's sometimes disheartening because of the things that you see is still happening or happening in the world today, uh, especially right now with something that was eminently foreseeable from the first day that um, then-President Trump started decided that to deflect uh, any responsibility for the virus by calling it, by putting it all on China and calling it the China virus, mm-hmm. um, I knew this would, this would come to no, to no good end. And, and here we are a year later and um, facing some really tough times for the Asian American community. Well, Michael, first of all, thank you very much for your service. 16 years uh, serving on the Civil Rights Commission, that's... Uh, that's, that's wonderful service to the country, to the community. And once again, thank you for your service. So why don't we move into this, this ugly new world and ugly new reality that we're facing of violence against the Asian American community. Uh, of course, here in San Francisco, we have had a, uh, a long and rich tradition of, uh, of immigration from Asia. And um, give us a sense of um, give us a sense of where we stand today and how we can how we can combat this because uh, we have 5.6 percent of our population who is of Asian heritage and it uh, out of a population of three 330 million people that's a significant uh, significant part of our population it, it pains me to think that uh, the fellow citizens' neighbors, particularly here in San Francisco, are going to sleep at night worried about a knock on the door, a, a rock through the window, uh, uh, an elderly relative getting mugged, or even worse, on the streets of San Francisco. Um, what what can we do? What can we do to stop this and get back to the well, way we were? Yeah, that's a good question, Jim. But I think it's important um, to sort of understand historical significance of this because we we live especially for us who live in San Francisco we live in a place where diversity with capital D is is a is part of who we are it's our ethos but the fact is is that the the locus of anti-asian sentiment began in California it began here uh, during the gold rush um, the 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 fact that we have always it's easy it's easy to figure out you know, who's, if someone is Asian American or not, right? right? It's not like you can, you know, you can, it's, you can, you can just, I mean, you can just tell. And, and because of that, from the very beginning, um, the way we were brought to this country, and in many ways, uh, it, very different from, of course, from, from the black American experience, we were not brought in and changed. We were not hunted in our countries. We were not sold, but, we were brought here, and we were brought here to perform work that other people did not want to do. And so, in that sense, there there are things, there's some similarity. And and in that in that when people when people when you think of people that way, they no longer become people, right? Right. They don't. They're they're not the same. And in San Francisco, for in San Francisco, 
and in California, you know, the first, um, uh, you, you just see that the, the, the kind of their segregation, Chinatown was originally a segre- was originally created as a segregated community within San Francisco. It's where you put the Chinese. They couldn't, they couldn't leave there or they could only leave there during certain parts of the day. Uh, it was, it was a place that, uh, only certain kind of businesses could operate, and it's it's it that sort of underneath the skin, underneath the surface of of the American experience has always been this uh, prejudice, fear, whatever against Asian Americans. I mean, think about it. And it and what what and what is really fascinating, Jim. I think you would appreciate this is that the some of the most important effectuations of civil rights came about for all of America came because of Chinese Americans deciding they had enough yes. and hiring hiring white lawyers you know that is <laughs> that is actually could you uh, as a lawyer michael could you please expound on that because that's a fascinating history that i think that very few of our listeners are really familiar with and how uh how you know chinese americans had just had enough and some of the some of those cases that you're referring to were pursued to the Supreme Court. Give us a sense of that history and how Chinese American immigrants were able to use the legal system to take cases right to the Supreme Court that dealt with civil rights. Well, I mean, here, here's here's I mean, let's just what you what, what happened after the Civil War, uh, the Civil Rights Amendments uh, were were enacted, especially the Fourteenth Amendment, which created equal protection under the under the law. And it was, of course, its main intent was to try and create a, a a place where black Americans would be equal to white. And, of course, we know how long that took uh, to, to accomplish. But the first tests of that were actually made by the Chinese-American community. Mm-hmm. Um, even further back than that, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but say immigration policy. Prior to a Chinese passenger filing a lawsuit, states could were developing their own immigration policies. And, of course, in California, which is, I said, the locus of the anti-Asian sentiment back in the late 1800s, California decided on their own, we're just not going to let people from China in here, period. And, and, someone, and, and it took a Chinese passenger, uh, a woman, actually, uh, to file a lawsuit that went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And the, and the Supreme Court said, no. It's the responsibility of the federal government. So you, uh-huh. you wonder why you have all these issues between the feds and the states. It's because the federal government has the right to set immigration policy and uh, things that Texas and Arizona and other places were trying to do uh, under Republican leadership has, have, been wiped, have been knocked out because it's pre- the preeminency of the federal government. And that was because of a Chinese woman following a lawsuit. Most importantly for me, what's exciting for me for civil rights is that the, the idea that the that the 14th Amendment meant that a government could not discriminate against an entire race in how it behaved came about from a lawsuit brought by the Chinese Americans in San Francisco. That's amazing. Because, get this, 
It stands as a board of supervisors. <laughs> My goodness. The entity, that I, the entity that I served on yes. 116 years later yes. uh, after this case um, put together an ordinance that basically said you need to get the permission of the board of supervisors in order to operate a laundry. Uh-huh. And every Chinese business person was turned down by the board of supervisors. And they said, now, wait a minute. You're letting all the white folks through uh-huh. and none of the Chinese are getting it. We think this is violates that thing called the 14th, that equal, that equal protection thing in the 14th Amendment. They hired a smart white lawyer. They brought a lawsuit and the 14th Amendment was interpreted for the first, first time to mean that, you, that a government, a local government, could not discriminate against a race of pe- against people simply because of their race. That's because of my predecessors at the board of supervisors who are a bunch of racist pigs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and fortunately, fortunately, the uh, the plaintiff had the uh, had the foresight and the the drive, and knew he or she had those rights to pursue that case. Good for them. Uh, and, and what was key is that the, the, the board said, well, what do you mean? The, the, the law just simply says you need a permit. It doesn't say only a white people can get a permit, but the court said, no, 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 the way you're enforcing it is discriminatory. And that was, that's an important, important ruling that has had major ramifications throughout the civil rights movement all the way up to today. Um, and then there's another important case, which, again, redounds to the benefit of Everyone in this country who has come from somewhere else, which is pretty much everyone. Of course. And that is birthright citizenship. The idea that if you're born here, you're an American, came about because of a Chinese American. Really? Who went back to China, came back, uh-huh. and, got, and, got, and got stopped and said, I'm sorry, we have an exclusion act here right now, and you're Chinese, you're Chinese, uh-huh. and you can't come in. He said, I am an American, I was born here, and he said, so what, you're Chinese. The idea that the fact of the, that if you were born in the United States, you're an American, is because this guy Wong Kim Ark um, sued the United States government to say, under under the like, it created essentially the citizenship clause of the Fourteenth Amendment meant he was an American, and think about how that's applied to many generations of people. In this country, tens of that. millions, tens of millions of people have have benefited yeah. from that ruling. Now, now let's fast forward to today, because obviously sure. the uh, the Chinese American community, the Japanese American community, all of uh, all of the the Asian American communities in the United States have done remarkably well, um, both in terms of education and professions and. Uh, so on and so forth, have done remarkably well in the United States. And now, in in large measure, because of what's happened with the virus, it seems as though that is being, those successes are being questioned. It's bringing out some jealousy on the part of other Americans who are not as successful and arguably haven't worked as hard for that success. Well, what's interesting, Jim, is is... is, is Part of that, part of what you're alluding to, is sort of the, the model minority, um, and actually it's a myth. 
for for Asian Americans. I mean, it, 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 if you disaggregate the data uh, based on um, what generation you are as an immigrant, what part of Asia you come from, uh, Pacific Islander, et cetera, the Asian, the Asian American community is really no different demographically than any others. It's just that it's just that for certain parts of the of the Chinese American and, and Japanese American and other parts of the Asian American community, there is there is high performing, um, but it, but and, and again, it's because we're very visible. You know, we just yes. don't blend blend in. It's not like you can say, well, you know, all the Irish Americans or German American, whatever. It's you can sort of look and go, oh yeah, that that smart kid is Asian. Um, there are plenty plenty of smart white kids out there, plenty of smart black kids, Latino kids, whatever. But for for whatever it is, um, that that's how people see it, and and that and and there is, I would say, some jealousy. I think that part of that jealousy, by the way, is what is what sparked the internment of the Japanese Americans in World War II, because. Um, my, my father among them because of how well they had done in accumulating land and property and savings. And, and, um, you know, it, 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 it seems like, well, you know, as with all things, they can't be playing by the same rules. And obviously now they attacked our country. So it proves they weren't playing by the same rules and we're going to toss them all off into the desert and, and, and lock them away. But, but I think that, that, so, I, you know, it is a myth. I think that myth hurts us. I think that myth makes people think that that um, it's okay to um, take us down a peg. It makes it, and in some ways, that myth has been self-perpetuating on our own communities because, you know, part of our problem is our failure to report because we're afraid you know, of drawing attention to ourselves any more than the fact of what we look like uh, already does, and and that's something that I think. Needs to be addressed and and in, in a in a substantive and, and serious way um, as a result of what's going on now. We need to have better outreach in our communities and, and languages appropriate to that. I mean, because remember that the, the the older gentleman who was stabbed at uh, in San Francisco was from Thailand. He yes. was Chinese. Um, and and you think and you think about how again we're all mistaken for each other after nine eleven. Um, the first person killed was a Sikh, not even someone from, you know, not someone who, who, who even represented the community they were trying to punish. Not was saying there's anything justified about any of that, but, but, um, you know, people, people look at us and they collectively put us all in the same, in the same basket. And, uh, part of what we need to do is, is collectively work together, but also individually highlight our differences and our com- and yet our commonalities with the greater population because uh you know there's there's some education that needs to be done uh, done here and and the most importantly the biggest education is that what does national origin have to do with your nationality mm-hmm. right the fact that that my my ancestors came from china and japan i'm i'm, I'm one of the rare mixed ones from the early times um, is uh, now it's very common. But back when my parents got married, it was like what um, <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, I they I'm an American. I've been American all 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 my life. That I I think American. I I 
act American. I speak American. And you shouldn't have to um, justify. You shouldn't have to justify and, that to anyone. No, yeah. but I have. I, I've had to do that throughout my life. I've I've been the tar- I've been the target of, and my father's and my whole family has been the target of, of of racism and, and bias, uh, overt and unconscious. And you know that that to me is a. I think I think part of what I hope to come out of what's what's going on right now is a recognition of how in, how unconscious bias really helped fuel what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people won't say that, oh yeah, I, I'm I hate Asians or I hate Chinese or I hate Japanese Americans, whatever. But there is there is, I think, an unconscious and implicit bias and a lot of what's going on. I think I think that that um and it's something that needs to be to be dug into more. We know, you know, how prevalent and horrible it is with regard to the to the African American community, how that how that affects how police view and see and and is and is part of the whole Black Lives Matter reform. But it's also present when it comes to the Asian American community as well. So Michael, wearing your your civil rights commissioner's hat, and you've been a civil rights commissioner for 16 years. Issues such as these are ones that you're uh, that you have a, a very close working knowledge of and experience with. How are we as Americans? How are we as a society going to nip this in the bud and and just eradicate it from our society? This uh, this this recent wave of uh, anti-Asian uh, violence and hate. What are your? What's your? What's the, what's the plan? How do we? How do we stop this? Well, the first is understanding the the nature and the reach of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until 2013 that federal agencies actually began disaggregating data for the Asian American community. So you didn't know if people were being attacked with Chinese, Japanese ancestry, Thai. South Asian, it was just all lumped together. Mm-hmm. Um, so improving the reporting under the Hate Crimes Statistics Act is going to be important. Um, strengthening the Hate Crimes Reporting Act is important as well. Right now, it's not quite the mandatory requirement of local police departments as as it should be, and it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, so understanding you know, the issue is going to be Another one. The other part, as I talked about, is to what extent is there uh, implicit uh, or unconscious bias against Asian Americans in in the, in, the, in you know, important decisions that are going on, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's whether it's university admissions, whether it's employment. Those kinds of things need to be measured as well. We need to get a good handle on that, and then then with that. You know, identifying the problem, then you sort of identify what the solutions can be. We already know right now that one solution needs to be we need better outreach with the with with all parts of the Asian American community, especially in the newer immigrant communities. We need better language reach. We need you know PSA. We need the, the federal government needs to do a better job of doing that, and then and then. From there, with regard to what's going on right now, is enforcement. Mm-hmm. It's understanding that that people need to understand that there are consequences 
to their actions and and hate crime uh, 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 enhancements or char- and charges are things that the gov- that state and local and federal governments need to be acutely aware of as part of their toolkit and and use it to the full uh, extent and force of the law. Now, Michael, do we have uh, our own San Francisco Police Department? Uh, do we have a dedicated hate crimes unit? I mean, after all, San Francisco Police Department has had two Chinese-American chiefs, um, Chief Lau, Fred Lau, and Chief, uh, Chief Fong. So, you know, we've certainly the... Uh, so, so is there a dedicated Asian-American hate unit in the San Francisco Police Department? And if there isn't, why isn't there one? I don't know if there's one dedicated just to Asian Americans. I do know there was a hate crimes unit. I do know that that uh, that uh, Vice President Harris, when she was the DA in San Francisco, put together a hate crimes prosecution unit uh, and then did the same thing at the, at the state level when she was Attorney General. Those are all things that are important. Um, yeah. Should there be a hate crimes unit for 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 the African American Asian communities separate or apart, you know, I I can't I can't be the judge of it. But I do know there is one. Um, I think that the the, the uh, I, I I think there are a lot of questions being raised right now about uh, about uh, the current DA and whether or not he's going to file hate crime charges against the uh, man who killed the um, uh, the, the older Thai. American. I mean, I, I think there was there's been a lot of backlash about his use of the temper tan, use of temper tantrum, um, as much as you know, the bad day comment was used in Atlanta. Um, you know, again, why pick on this particular individual? Why pick on those particular individuals? Um, it's not because they just had a bad day or they were a sex addict or they were at a temper tantrum. There is there are other things at at work and at play. And those need to be examined. And if and if it shows that there was there was bias and, and, and conscious or not, but bias nonetheless in how they view these view those individuals, I think I think it's justified for a hate crimes charge to be brought. You need to be able to have to say I hate you know Asians bring a hate crime. If if you've been if you have if you have a bias. In your in your in your in your in the way you view life against them, against our community, I think it, I think that uh, these are things that need to be brought up uh, in in prosecutions and and enforcement. And um, to do anything else is, is to kid yourself. I mean, it's the same thing. Why did why did why did uh, uh, the police officer in Minneapolis feel he could put his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight and a half minutes? Not because, you know, well, he was a bad guy or I was having a bad day. It's because he felt that this person wasn't worth a life. Mm. And, and, again, and, that's a, and that's part of, Jim, how we need to think about this. The persecution of peoples by race, by religion, by ethnicity over time has always been built around a, a subtext, an overtext, that they are not the same as you, that they are sub-you, they are beneath you. The dehumanization, the otherness. Uh, I had a wonderful conversation earlier this week with Christine Hoover, 
who's the director of the Institute of Hate Studies at Gonzaga University up in Spokane. And of course, Spokane is right on the border with Idaho and close to some of those uh, extreme right-wing white supremacist compounds yep. in uh, the Idaho panhandle. We had a wonderful conversation with her. Uh, if you haven't listened to that podcast, please do so. But that sense of otherness and that sense of otherness leads to beginning of dehumanization. And then once the dehumanization of that person uh, is a fait accompli, then it's easier to treat them as less and to, you know, we have, I'm, I'm hopeful that our very controversial district attorney uh, is going to charge this man with a hate crime because it couldn't be more apparent uh, to say nothing of the member of our school board who was caught uh, publicly with uh, tweets, very disparaging tweets uh, against uh, Asian Americans, yet she still remains on the Board of Education, the Board of Education, no less, which is trying to set standards uh, for our children and our children's education. So, Michael, I know... Uh, well, that, that Board of Education has its own problem. Well, that, that has, that's not, a whole not, other... Not just, not just the... Not just the, the the allegedly and potentially racist uh, um, uh, now stripped of her vice 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 chair uh, member, but but all of them together, I think, have a very interesting view of uh, American history that may not comport with uh, anything that that most Americans believe. But uh, well, Michael, we yeah, know I, I mean, go we, ahead. We could do we could do a we could do a whole podcast just on the board of education alone, but. Uh... Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm very proud of San Francisco, and I, and, and San Francisco has done many things that put it on the forefront of, of uh, many things in, 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 in the country. But, 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 canceling Abraham Lincoln uh, is not part of that. So, uh, well, Michael, listen. On that note, as we, as we come to the last few minutes of our podcast here, um, tell us a little bit about, uh, if you can. Uh, some of the projects that the the U.S. Civil Rights Commission is currently working on, and uh, once again, thank you for your service. But but let's end the podcast on a higher note and uh, talk to our better angels and some of the great work that the U.S. Civil Rights Commission uh, is doing and projects that you may be working on. Yeah, well, um, thank you very much, Jim. And again, it's been a pleasure uh, to to re-enter your orbit and uh, and. Um, Thank you very much for this opportunity. And just to end it, I think that this has given us, I think, a moment and an opportunity to to try and uh, take take the issue of of hate crimes and hate uh, to the next level. And certainly, the role that the administration, last administration, played in it, it's something that has been weighing very heavily on my mind. And I am. I can't really say what it is right now because it's still in the formative stages. And but I'm going to be speaking with uh, uh, speakers with Speaker Pelosi and and members of the Congressionalists and uh, and uh, and others about some ideas I have for how the Civil Rights Commission can be a, a factor um, more than just re, more than just being reactive. Uh, to things that the, any administration does, but much more of a of a force for uh, research and and recommendation and change uh, on on quickly moving issues like 
when you start calling something the Chinese virus, understanding the impact uh, and what it could mean and, and how, how, what its impact will be to that community and reacting quickly and swiftly with uh, recommendations and remedies uh, to counter that is something that I think uh, this country, this government has been sorely lacking in, um, whether it was understanding what would, what might happen to the, uh, Arab American community in the wake of the, of the, of the, of the Gulf Wars and then the attacks on 9-11, um, and, and the Islamic community after 9-11, um, the Chinese virus, other things that have come up where you don't, don't understand or think about the element, the backlash to, to communities in your country. But we need to do a better job of, of anticipating and reacting to that rather than waiting for the numbers to get to such a level that you just can't ignore it anymore. And then the next thing you know, six people are dead uh, in Atlanta. Well, Michael, thank you very much. I'd like to thank you, uh, our guest, Michael Yaki, for sharing your, your insights. It's been a very lively conversation today. Obviously, you're passionate about the issue. I'm passionate about the issue. And I think we've probably conveyed that sense of passion and indignation, I would say, uh, about what's going on with the violence towards the Asian American community. But again, thank you for sharing your insights about the Asian American experience and the history, uh, some uh, fascinating history that originated right here in San Francisco in terms of the Asian American experience in this country. And once again, Michael, we look forward to your continued leadership during these fourth times. And for thank our, you, Jim. Thank you, Michael. And for our listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, it ensures that all future episodes come directly to your inbox. The website also gives you access to all 135 past episodes. You can send me an email. You can read my blog or you can peruse my book. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting from America's favorite city, San Francisco. <laughs>